Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant doing his cheeks. He was just informed that he has to do that for the rest of our career, whether he likes it or not, because that's our lucky thing. My cheeks are actually uh, expanding. They're actually looser than they were two and a half years ago. I know. You look like Walter Matthau. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I love it. He's one of those guys that, that he looked elderly when he was like in his 40s. Or 20s, I think. He kind of had that hunched over look, the uh-huh. sarcopenia, yeah. if you will. Yes, nice. Isn't that sarcopenia? Uh, that's muscle loss, age-related muscle loss. Oh, I thought that was literally the hunchback. Thing. That's where you get the hunch. Sure, yeah. Like you lose control or you just lose your muscle mass, including the stuff that has you stand upright. So, yeah, you're right. Okay. But he also had like the, the jowls, jowls yeah. and like a five o'clock shadow that was ever-present. Yeah. But he was just a great actor. Oh, dude, I love him. The original Odd Bears. Couple. So good. Yeah, he was great in that. Bad News Bears. Mm-hmm. And everything this else. Is how we're starting. Bad News Bears is a good one to start this one with because he was a drinker. He was a drinker. Um, he was what you might call an alcoholic, right? Yeah. In the 70s, though, it was... Everybody was an alcoholic. Drive around with the Schlitz in your car and it's no big deal. Now, let's say... But remember, Chuck, this is the third out of three. This is the end of the trifecta. This is the jewel in the crown jewels, in the family jewels. This is it. Yes. Um, we did addiction, prohibition, and now rehab. Yes. Uh, if Walter Matthau had wanted to go to dry out, as they say, sure. for his alcoholism yeah. in Bad News Bears. Mid-70s. In the mid-70s, he would have had a very limited choice of where he could go. Probably, most likely, he would have gone to what is called a sanitarium, a.k.a. an insane asylum, a.k.a. a mental hospital. Yeah, or a regular hospital. Yeah, yeah, but most likely it would have been uh, uh, some sort of medical clinical setting Mm -hmm. where his addiction was treated. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be uh, private Malibu promises by the seashore. Not yet. Because rehab, as we know it today, um, which which makes the cover of tabloids as frequently as any celebrity, oh yeah, just the the concept of rehab does. Sure, um, didn't start until the eighties, actually. That I thought I was very shocked by that. Yeah, have you ever seen Valley of the Dolls? I have not. Believe it or not, that's a good movie. I had actually forgotten that I'd seen that movie uh-huh. until I reread this article that I wrote. And wrote. I think I'd seen the movie, it's, I guess, at some point around then. It was like, oh, yeah, Valley of the Dolls is perfect. If you have not seen Valley of the Dolls, go see it. It's an excellent movie. And Petty Duke's character goes to dry out at, you know, a, a sanitarium. Which means, you know, shock treatment and being strapped down so you can't yeah. drink. It could be. And, like, if you had been going to one, you know, far enough ago in, say, the 30s, and you're a particularly rabble-rousing alcoholic yeah. or drug addict, they may have lobotomized you. Yeah. Yeah. McMurphy style. Yep. Exactly. So, Josh, uh, you kind of blew the cover off of the fact, well, that was the first fact. Yeah. They didn't start till the 80s. Hey, I've been doing this a while. <laughs> uh, so where are we now then? Well, um, now. As they exist now? As they exist now, one of the other things that would have changed um, that anyone listening to our Prohibition and Addiction uh, podcasts would know that 
one of the other things that changed and burgeoned alongside of rehabs as we know it, um, non-medical uh, facilities, right, yeah. um, is the idea that addiction is a brain disease, which we should cover real quick. Yeah, a little rehash. So before it was... Stun gravy. It was blamed on the demon juice. Right. It was inherent in that substance. Yeah, that was the evil thing, was the substance itself. Then it shifted, and all this started about the 19th century, late 18th century, early 19th century. The concept of addiction came about. Then it shifted from the stun gravy Mm -hmm. to uh, the person. It was a character flaw, right? Yeah, exactly. Something's wrong with you because you are not able to drink and... You have a weak will. Yeah, not able to not drink until you fall down flat. Right, exactly. And then finally, in the 80s, I would say about the 80s, the, the idea that addiction is a brain disease, that there is a process that an addict undergoes, a substance user, yeah, undergoes and becomes a substance abuser, that is the direct result of the substance hijacking that person's reward center in their brain. Exactly. That the, the decision of whether or not to... Um, engage in the, that risky behavior or um, do that substance, sure. snort it, shoot it, smack it, slam it, drop it, that kind of thing. Oh, no. Um, is, is is out of the user's hands, and therefore they're an addict. It's a disease. It's a chronic disease um, that, will, that, that has relapses and all that kind of stuff and needs boosters. So that model, the brain disease model, yeah. along with the creation of rehab, mm-hmm. uh, is, is where we are now. Well, yeah, and it's it's uh, well, it's not funny because I'm sure you plan this, <laughs> but the fact that you mentioned um, the temperance movement and prohibition uh, and figuring out what addiction was, they actually ended up leading to rehab because right back in those days, they uh, would you, were, they, were they called sober houses? Yeah, so remember you get locked up basically, right, where you can't drink. Did you see the um, Did you see the picture? You don't get the pictures, do you? Okay, so check that picture out. I think that's Carrie Nation, the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, standing next to a man who's taking a sip, and a bar, she's like yeah. standing at a bar, looking a little upset. Well, but- that's the definition of buzzkill. Exactly. <laughs> so the the temperance movement definitely gave rise to rehab by setting up, like you said, what are called sober houses, like the drunk tank, almost like on uh, Andy Griffith. You would lock up the drunk. Of course, you know. I think, on Andy Griffith, they were the guy was in the drunk tank. Otis, I think, for I, I weeks and weeks. I think they more re- resembled like you know halfway houses for that are like transitional homes between prison and society. I wouldn't know about those. I think you know your dad's house. Yeah. Okay. I think that um, that they they resembled that. It was like this house is among houses, and you can't get booze there. You can't bring, bring booze. You kind of need to say where you're going sure. and why and. Um, th- they set up these houses called sober houses that were sequestering people from regular society because alcohol was out there. And that was like the first rehab centers in the United States. In like the places. 1840s, I think. Man, that's crazy. They did this that long ago. And then we did the failed noble experiment, prohibition, which was basically yeah. like if you can rid society of al- alcohol, you can rid society of alcoholics. But you can't. So no. maybe we can at least set up places for them if they have troubles. Right. They went back to the sober house idea. Yeah, it's interesting that prohibition actually kind of led to rehabilitation clinics. Yeah. And more drinking. Well, that's not true because they said overall it went down, but... 30 to 50% across the board. Yeah, but the alcoholics, the the number of alcoholics increased. Yes, exactly. Right. So, Chuck, uh, where are we? We're, we're past the 1930s. Oh, one of the other things that came up, not just rehab, like, uh, as we understand it today, like a place where you go 
that's sequestered from the temptations yeah. of society yeah. to, to rehabilitate yourself. Um, one of the other things that came about as a direct result of prohibition in the temperance movement is, um, 12 step programs, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Yeah, Dr. Bob and Bill W., Robert Smith and Bill Wilson created this in 1935, and I don't think I realized it was that old either. Yeah, long time ago. And remember, Bill W. wanted to um, give everybody acid who came <laughs> yeah. through the program because he was like, this is really great. Yeah, he thought it might help. Uh, yeah, that was the first support group treatment program, and the 12 steps has uh well let's not jump there let let's just finish the history out well the um the international order of good templars oh yeah they they were uh, a society dedicated to assisting um alcoholics during the temperance movement supporting and, them yeah. and they created these support groups that eventually gave rise to this aa model that's gotcha. been proven like you're about to say so successful yeah which we'll get to and then chuck right yeah. at this point Thanks to AA, almost exclusively, and the idea that um, you you can you can treat you can lick it, yeah, you can treat addiction, especially in a medical setting um, before the advent of the eighties. Um, the the U.S. started throwing money, yeah, not just at eradicating uh, the the supply of illicit substances, but also the demand, and even more so the demand under Nixon, right? Yeah, Dick Nixon uh, put two-thirds of his uh, drug, kind of anti-drug policy money toward mm-hmm. uh, recovery and treatment, which is a really kind of a forward-thinking thing if you think about it in today's Especially terms. for Nixon. You would have thought, he like, let's throw all of it toward locking people up. Yeah. But uh, Ford came along and redistributed that to about a half-and-half half model, half toward policing and arresting mm-hmm. and trying to get drugs off the street and half toward treating people with the disease. Why is that ironic, Chuck? It's ironic because you might have heard of the Betty Ford Clinic, mm-hmm. and that was his wife who had a pretty bad pill addiction and alcoholism problem, Yeah, and she started it. She was like, oh, I can get clean, then I should set up a treatment center. Yeah, and she did. In uh, Rancho Mirage, California, the Betty Ford Clinic, um, in 1982, it opened its doors, and that, I think, was one of the models for the current incarnation yeah. of rehab. That was the first big... And I, I know celebrities went there, but that was just the first all-star treatment center that you heard on the news and probably, and not probably, most definitely because her name was on it. And it also, um, her lending her name to that treatment facility and admitting that she had been addicted to, you know, pills and booze. Yeah. Um, it was, it also had a lot of a, a big effect, I think, on getting people into treatment. Sure. Because she, it's, it was, it is still, but it was at the time even more so such a shameful thing to be addicted to something. Oh, yeah. Um, still is, but it's way more accepted now, but right, in certain like religious circles, I know it's still pre- pretty shameful. It, sure. I, I would definitely imagine so. Yeah. Um, but, but I think her putting her, like even the first lady can get hooked, then you know. Anybody can. Yeah, and if the first lady can kick it, then I can too. You know what other effect it had? I bet. What? People with the name Ford not naming their daughters Betty. I'll I'll bet you would name your daughter Betty Ford, would you? No. <laughs> well, I might, but I'm kind of a jokey kind of guy. Betty Ford Clark. Yeah. <laughs> Betty Ford Clinic Clark. That reminds me. Actually, I think I might have told you this. My friend Joey 
used to say that if he ever had a son, he would name him Thomas Magnum Dorlek. His last name is Dorlek. I think that's a good... I thought that was pretty good. It's a good name. But he had like three sons and didn't name any of them that, so... So he's a liar. Yeah, he's a lying liar. And he's been called out as a liar on this <laughs> podcast. Right. I don't think he listens. Um, once Reagan got into uh, into office, the um, policy of um, paying more for policing the supply side than paying any attention to the demand side uh, was continued. Yeah, the war on drugs. The war on drugs. In earnest. But by this time, people were seeing like, okay, rehab can work. Sure. It's a viable solution to treating our nation's substance abuse problems. And um, it was kind of etched in popular culture in, yeah, this, in the American booming. psyche. Yeah, and, and it boomed. Like private institutions all over the country started popping up. Yeah, and I think also that um, just say no campaign and like the idea of like, you know, drug, the drug addiction and yeah. how bad it was probably got a lot of kids... A lot more kids thrown into rehab by their parents than had ever been before. Yeah, I bet. You know? Yeah, like 13-year-olds who snuck some beer out one night. They're all of a sudden in rehab. Exactly. I've heard stories about that. Didn't you go to high school? (laughs) I did go to high school. So, Chuck, let's talk about different types of treatment. There's four, really. Actually, three, technically four. And, uh, by the way, I need to change the headings of this. I need to switch two chapter headings, I realize, because it's very misleading. Well, we can do it on the fly. I'm going to start with inpatient. Is that still correct? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> inpatient. And this, we should point out, this can take place um, in a private facility. It can be in a hospital still. Mm-hmm. Um, I think prison, you said, is a, is a big place for forced rehab. It is technically a, um, an inpatient facility. Inpa- yeah. Very much inpatient. <laughs> yeah, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Uh, what inpatient is, though, just like being a hospital stay, it means you're there, living there 24-7. Yeah, usually for that 28 days, for any uh, Sandra Bullock fans, <laughs> probably more for this podcast, for any Vigo Mortensen fans, 28 days. Not 28 days later. Right. The other one. Oh, was he in 28 days, Vigo? Yeah. He really? he played a sex-addicted like football star or something like that. That's funny. I ran into him like three times on one week in L.A. one time. Really? To the point where he looked at me and he was like, are you following me? Yeah. I thought he was going to kill me. Yeah, I'll bet. So, oh, no, not Vigo Mortensen. I was thinking, uh, who's the creepy guy from Buffalo 66? Vincent Gallo. Yeah. Disregard that whole story. I could see him. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't want to run into him that third time. I'd be afraid of him. Yeah, for sure. Thinking anything like that. Have you seen um, Hide and Seek? No. It's an awesome movie. Really? It is so twisted. Interesting. Him, is it horror? Uh, it's a thriller. Okay. Uh, Vincent Gallo, um, Jennifer Tilly is excellent in it. Daryl Hannah actually does a really good job. That's pretty much the cast, <laughs> and it's um, really something. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. All right, so where were we? We were inpatient. We were staying overnight, Josh, is where we were. And that can range, like you said, from 28 days all the way to... Basically, when you need to leave, six months, a year. Or when your insurance runs out. Yeah, if you're in there for a year, then you might be a hopeless case. <laughs> well. That'd be pretty bad. Yeah. But you really just inspired the hearts of a lot of people who've been in rehab for 11 months. I know. I just say that. <laughs> and it can be court-ordered as well. And they also, uh, in some of these long-term programs, can um, offer you like re-socialization. Mm-hmm. Because I imagine being in a rehab clinic for three or four months, six months. Right. They're, they're like, keep your milk in a refrigerator. Yeah, exactly. Or, failing that, <laughs> a cool, wet sack. 
Uh, outpatient is next. Uh huh. That's um, basically where you go in to visit on a set schedule. It could be daily, right? Um, but you're you're doing your regular life. You're sleeping at home. You're going to work, and then probably in between work and going to sleep, you're spending a, a significant amount of time um, in uh, counseling, in group sessions, twelve step maybe receiving medication. Methadone treatment usually takes the form of outpatient treatment. And that's actually one of the longest treatments, apparently, is, um, is methadone, prescription methadone treatment. Yeah. For to, uh, yeah, to get you off of the, the white pony. Yeah, whenever I see those on uh, the documentaries, it's, it's very much outpatient. Like you literally see the junkie walk up to the window to get his daily dose or her of uh, methadone. Yes. Uh, lastly, there is partial hospitalization. Um, this is uh, basically the opposite of outpatient, right? Um, well, it's not the opposite, but it's pretty close. Rather than go to work from 9 to 5 um, and then go to rehab, you go to rehab from like 9 to 5 during the day, but you, you stay at home and, and all that. Now, what's I, I don't understand the difference between that and outpatient. Outpatient, you're just not necessarily there all day. You might go for like your two-hour meeting and mm-hmm. leave every day? Yes. Okay. Yeah, whereas like partial hospitalization, you're spending way more time there during the partial hospitalization gotcha. treatment because, you know, um, after work for outpatient, you're there for maybe a couple hours, three hours, but it's like a part of your day. Instead of going home and sitting on the couch and watching TV, you're right. going to rehab. Or going to happy hour. With, with, you don't want to do that. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. I mean. Oh, at, yeah. Or going, yeah. After work, it's probably a good time for a lot of people because a lot of people associate the five o'clock bell ringing with that first drink. Right. Exactly. I'm sure that's a huge part of it as well. Partial hospitalization is where you're spending your days in rehab and then you go home. That is your job? Yes. Okay. Your job is to get well. Uh, Prison, you mentioned prison, or I did, and uh, when they do this in prison, they they take you out of the general population, typically. Didn't we have somebody write in after the prison? Um, Yeah, the listener mail on prisons, the guy was like, it's the... It was the easiest place to score drugs in the, I've ever been. Yeah, exactly. Was prison. Yeah. So they, I think that's kind of cool though. It shows like a real dedication to, um, rehab. Yeah. A- among prisons by, sure. by taking the people away rather than pretending like there's not a problem. Exactly. And I could actually see that being the case where they said, no, we're rehabbing people, but they're, you know, getting drugs being passed between the bars. Right. And readily. Yes. And other things. It's keistered. <laughs> so, Chuck, let's talk about treatment. Technically, I would call this one how rehab works. I wanted to switch those two chapters. Oh, okay. Right? Gotcha. Because really, types of treatment was what we just talked about, right? Yeah. And then how rehab works is what we're about to talk about. I just don't know how that got passed. Well, it did. So let's talk about how rehab works, man. Well, it's a long process. Don't expect to be out of there in a week. Although that one program that you point out says they can do it in six days. Which one? Six months. Oh, six months? No, the, I thought uh, that one. The Jude Thaddeus program? Yeah, was that six months? Six months. Oh, okay. Or six weeks. Six weeks, I'm sorry. Okay. Six weeks, Chuck. So I would say don't plan on spending more than like a week in your rehabilitation clinic would be my guess. Yeah, um... You can also, we, we failed to mention, ERs can technically be an inpatient rehab that lasts long enough to, to get you over your withdrawals or to bring you back to life from an acute drug overdose. So if you are taken to the hospital, OD'd, they'll keep you there as long as you're physically 
uh, or until you're physically well. Yes. Which Meaning can, the drugs are out of your body. That can, yeah, it can rehabilitate you. I mean, you no, can, true. yeah. So, but it, so it can last for as little as several hours, to, right. like you said, months and months, possibly a year, right? Uh, but yeah, everybody who buys into the um, brain disease model of addiction says, okay, because of this, there's there's a lot of facets to addiction, which means there's a lot of facets to rehabilitation. Sure. It's going to take a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But step one is always just withdraw, get yeah. the drugs out of your body, and get clean physically. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to have any physical withdrawal from behavioral addiction, right. compulsive behavior, but you're still probably going to have a rough time at first. Oh, yeah. You know, with the desire so. to do that. Um when you are stable, I guess, and probably before you're stable, you're probably going to be introduced to a 12-step program of some sort, right? Now, did AA create the 12-step? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there was no such thing as the 12-step before that. But there's all sorts of variations on the 12-step now. Yeah, and one of the things, like we were saying, AA is in- incredibly successful. There's been study after study after study done on AA and um, any kind of um, relapse associated with the people who go through it. Right. And um, it's a very successful program. But it's also very criticized often because, one, it's criticized for being too indulgent on the addict's ego. Sure. Right? Like, this is not your fault. It's all okay. Right. (laughs) Or if you go through these steps, you're going to be a great person. Yeah. Um, And it's also very uh, reliant on a belief in God. Yeah. I don't think there's – it's not like a Christian God or a Judeo-Christian God or any specific God, but I think they call it like a higher power, and there's plenty of atheist addicts out there. Well, they call it – I actually looked at the original 12 steps today, and they say the word God in four of the 12 steps. Mm. But on the – before that first mention of God, it says, uh, God as you understand him to be. So that's the little caveat. Like we're not saying – like. Like you said, the Judeo-Christian God must be the one. But they definitely say you, you got to have a higher power here or else right. it's not going to work. Right. And the problem is, is there's a lot of people whose conception of God is that they understand him to be non-existent. Right. Or that so, I am God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was like a joke that just flitted right <laughs> through my prefrontal cortex. It wasn't funny. No. Um, so, Chuck, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, I believe, and some others, but most notably Narcotics Anonymous, um, has adjusted the 12-step model to accommodate atheists as well. And you know what? I, I bet regular AA meetings are a little less centered on that now. That would be my guess. They probably wouldn't refuse you at the door if you said you were an atheist. Oh, I don't think they refuse you. I don't think it's it's that. Or try to convert you or what anything. I think what they're saying is like if you're an atheist and you don't buy into the God thing, like oh, okay. you're not going to be as successful as gotcha. somebody who does because gotcha. part of it is like giving it over to this higher power. Okay. So I don't think that they're exclusive or anything like that. I think that it's like atheists aren't going to do as well. Gotcha. All right. Have they done studies on that, I wonder? I'm sure. I bet they have. I didn't go to that detail, though. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, CBC, is that next? Yeah. Cognitive Behavioral Counseling, uh, which is psychotherapy. And that is when they, I mean, they can treat mental disorders, they can treat depression, uh, PTSD. Yeah. And basically, they're, they're trying to eradicate addiction from the life of someone by looking at their behavior. Yeah. Very, uh, thoroughly. That's most, um, most therapy that anyone goes in for these days is cognitive behavior therapy. It's right. like one of the most prevalent 
Um, and yeah, it's, it's looking at behavior. First of all, it's recognizing the patterns of behavior, sure. especially destructive patterns of behavior. Yeah. And then figuring out why you're doing that and then eradicating it. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's this multi-step process. Um, CBC is less effective according to studies as 12-step programs. Actually. By itself? Mm-hmm. Either one by themselves. Right, right. Uh, 12-step usually beats cognitive behavior, behavioral counseling, right? Yes. What about meds? Uh, well, if, you know, you need meds like methadone to get through your treatment, then your rehab center is probably going to have them for you. Yeah. Uh, or antidepressants are a big one too. Sure. And, uh, one of the things that's, um, very effective is identifying, usually through CBC, uh-huh. um, other underlying comorbid conditions. Oh, so yeah. Like if you uh, have a binge eating disorder or mm-hmm. you are, um, depressed and an alcoholic, Treating those two things simultaneously in the same umbrella, yeah, yeah, uh, has been shown to provide the most success. Sure, because if you're depressed and you can't get treatment for alcoholism if you're suffering through depression, and just leave the depression alone, right? Because you're probably an alcoholic because of your depression. Or Prob- that's a probably, large part or of it. it could be because you're an alcoholic, but that doesn't right. necessarily mean that curing your alcoholism will cure your depression if you've sure. gone into a clinical degree of depression, right? Like a chicken or the egg. Kind of scenario? Yes. To get to the other side. <laughs> and <laughs> acupuncture, Josh, you mentioned a few non-traditional methods. Mm-hmm. Acupuncture is one of them. Have you ever done that? I have not. Have you? It's awesome. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. It's one of the most relaxing uh, things I've ever done in my life, actually. I went to a place in L.A. that had a, it was a, a school where you could get really cheap acupuncture. <laughs> was uh, Vincent Gallo your acupuncture? <laughs> he was, actually. <laughs> but he used uh, nails. Tenpenny nails. It's very relaxing. It's not painful at all if you're a little weirded out by needles. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm totally freaked out by needles, but it's not like that. I'm freaked out about them not um, thoroughly cleaning their needles enough. I've heard accusations of that. Oh, they're new, though. Not all the time. The ones I got were taken out of the little package there right in front of me. Yeah. No, I'm sure. Like oh, most okay. of them, but there's ones out there that are just like... Yeah, I guess needles I just used in some other guy (laughs) because I'm cheap. If they're wiping uh, blood off the end of them, I wouldn't get that. Uh, If you are a Scientologist, you might go in for Elrond's patented addiction treatment, maybe we'll call it. Yeah, it's like a vitamin regimen and uh, exercise. And and sauna. Sauna is part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, What else? Uh, The Jude Thaddeus program, we talked about that. Uh, No meds. No meds at all. No. And I, I got when I, I don't remember because I didn't go back and look, but I got the impression that this they're kind of this is something of a closely guarded secret. Right. And it may or may not be viewed suspiciously by conventional rehabs. Oh really? But they, they boast a sixty five percent success rate for their six week stays. Wow. And yeah, they don't they don't use meds. It's all just yeah. like, you are bad, you're a bad person, <laughs> and they, they, they're like, you eat like this, and they push your head right. down into a dog bowl. And then they do a Clockwork Orange uh, <laughs> movie viewing experience <laughs> right. with your eyes And then open. six weeks later, you're like, oh, I'll never do that again. Josh, let's say you love Eastern medicine and things like acupuncture, and you're afraid that if you go into your traditional rehab clinic that they won't oblige to those kinds of things, that that... Is that a worry that you should worry about? It depends on how much money you have. Oh, really? Yeah. Some of the higher-end ones will um, combine a lot of stuff, even cool stuff like helicopter rides or wilderness survival, <laughs> right. based on the idea that um, things 
like uh, wilderness survival can can show you how self reliant you can be, um, or a helicopter ride is meant to just be like, wow, look at how beautiful life is even without booze, right? Um, or yeah, maybe acupuncture, spa treatments, things like that. Like the the higher end you go, yeah. that that more pleasurable the experience is going to be, I imagine. I'm glad that works, but when I hear something like that, I think, you know, look how beautiful the the world looks from a a helicopter flight along the shore of the Pacific coast. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't need drugs to witness this, Mm -hmm. but you need a helicopter. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. You come out, like, hooked on helicopter rides. I guess what they're looking for is just to inspire you with that notion that, yeah, I don't need it. So um, I agree with you, though. I think that I was it's trying kinda, to be funny. No, but I, it, it was funny and true, Chuck, which is the best kind. <laughs> is it? Um, there, this stuff actually does work. As we said, people have been studying this stuff since they started in the 80s. Right. Um, and one of the things that they found that the most effective kind of treatment is rehab, mm-hmm. uh, where you are sequestered away or you have some form of rehabilitation treatment. Right. right? Um, a 12-step group yeah and weekly counseling like so cognitive behavioral counseling throwing everything at it sure um meds are not necessarily included in that oh, yeah i noticed that but um a, being part of a group especially a 12 step group plus counseling plus a stint at rehab um is the most successful as far as uh, the rate of relapse goes yeah to the tune of 87% the target cities project study yeah. quoted if you do all those three things yep that's an 87% chance of not relapsing after 6 months yes and get this this is surprising to me i remember this when you factor in treatment dropouts people who just you know were like they were like i'm not going to stay the whole 28 days but i'm going to keep going to a weekly 12 step meeting right and I'm going to go to counseling five times a week, which is a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, they still had a success rate. The abstinence rate was 74%. So, so even without treatment, drops it, it can be. Yeah. It's not bad. No, no. Huh. Uh, and then at 62%, actually, it keeps going down if you complete the treatment program aspect, but you didn't go to the 12-step meetings and you did go to counseling. So the two out of the three minus the twelve step, you have a sixty-two percent chance. Right. So the twelve step, as they found, is is the most uh, significant, followed closely by um, individual counseling. Yeah. Usually CBC. Um, and what they found is that a person who goes to four twelve-step sessions a month, or one even one counts individual counseling session per month more than anybody else, yeah, has a forty percent better chance of, of success in, in remaining abstinent. Well, that says that these work. These programs they, work. They actually do work. But here's the thing. They work best, again, studies show, when the person is ready and willing to give up this behavior. Yeah, that's what they always say when, you know, you got to be ready to change anything in your life in order for that to change. Yes. And that makes sense. Otherwise, you're just going to be you're just doing it for your your parents or your wife or your husband, and if it's not coming from you, then good luck. Do you know what's funny though? What's that? I just realized this. That was conventional thinking, but with the advent of prison rehab, yeah, new information. Studies have have also shown that um, if you force someone into rehab in prison specifically, um, they will still there's they still have a pretty high success rate and abstinence rate, and even a lower rate of recidivism. <laughs> recidivism. Right. That's a bonehead word. 
Yes, you're right. No, no. Oh, was that the end? Yeah. Uh, well, and to that tune, Josh, they've uh, now got these uh, awesome situations called drug courts where- They pass out drugs for you to take <laughs> before your sentence. Uh, drug courts actually are when um, it's set up specifically for drug cases, and instead of putting you in jail, they send it to you to treatment programs. Right. And out of the 100% of people in treatment programs in the United States, 36% were referred there by the courts. Right, in 2004. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Let's talk let's talk some stats, buddy. Um in 2008. So, I wrote this in I think 2007 maybe. Ought 7. Yeah. And um the I think the the most recent statistics I could get were about 2005. Yeah. So, it was about 3.9 million people in 2005 that went in for treatment. Uh, in 2008, it was pretty much the same, 4 million um, people in the U.S., age 12 or older, yeah, um, went for treatment for drugs or alcohol. Right. Or possibly both, right? Um, of that 4 million people, that was a fifth of the estimated people who were current illicit drug users in the U.S. in that same year. So not very many people are going to rehab? No, but I also wonder like what, what percentage of that 20 million illicit current drug users, which are people who admit to have used, who, to have used a drug within the past month. Right. Age 12 or older, uh, admitted to using pot and just pot. Right. Sure. That's good. I point. don't, I don't think they, they take you at rehab for pot. Oh, uh, no, no, they do. Do they really? Oh yeah. There's pot, there's pot marijuana specific rehabilitation. Uh, groups. I don't know about clinics, huh. where you actually stay, but I know there's 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 uh, marijuana uh, addiction groups for sure. I did not know that. Yeah, seventeen million though. Hold on, this is a much better stat. Seventeen million heavy drinkers in the U.S. age um, twelve or older. I wonder how many of the twenty million and the seventeen million right. overlap. You right. Know? Well, you mentioned 4 million and you said some uh, were in there for both. You actually had the stat um, 1.3 million out of the 4 million were in there for both drugs and alcohol. Gotcha. 0.8 million for just drugs and 1.6 million for just alcohol. Hmm. So what does that say about the, what's the uh, the real gateway drug? I don't know because we talked about that. Remember during the Prohibition podcast? Yeah. You and I uh, predicted that if prop, I think I predicted and you, you didn't necessarily agree. That prohibition has taught us that if you legalize something or if you prohibit something, it makes right. it more forbidden, but apparently it's not the case. No, I agree with that. Well, th- these numbers show different. I mean, alcohol you can get everywhere, so. Yeah. It's, and it's clearly a big problem. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're both wrong. Maybe. Let's talk about money. Because these things ain't cheap necessarily. No. When you look at the grand total. And especially if you want to meet Eric Clapton, it's not cheap. <laughs> uh, in 2002, Josh, the average cost of a program was about 1400 bucks, uh, residential at 3800 and outpatient and methadone treatment uh, for $7,400 for the average cost of a, a full treatment program. Right. And that's on the, that's the average cost. They go up, you know, considerably if you're interested in the luxury tour. Right. Um, I had down that Promises from, or not Promises, um, Crossroads, which was founded by Eric Clapton. It's in uh, the West Indies in Antigua. Um, 
It was fifteen grand per month. Apparently, it's gone up since two thousand seven. It's now nineteen five a month, right? Yeah, it's a lot of money. That is a tremendous amount of money, but it is far and away not as expensive as the most expensive one that I found, that you found, I should say, um, is the Sanctuary in Byron Bay, Australia. Holy cow! I didn't see that. Eighteen thousand five hundred dollars per week. Per week. A week. So Clapton's is nineteen thousand five hundred for a month. That's a bargain. It is. Uh, passages in Malibu is forty to fifty grand a month. Uh, Promises, which you've all heard of, because Ben Affleck and Robert Downey Jr. had a lovely stay there, among others. Uh, Thirty-three thousand per month. And they've, you know, they've all had their roster of celebrities, depending on where you live. Yeah, and isn't that just, isn't that kind of odd if you step back and look at it? Like, like celebrity and rehab is just, they're hand in hand. I know. Our fascination with both are equal. Well, and and it can be good for your career, publicity-wise, so. Sure can, which is weird. It is weird. It's also weird when you look at the fact that it says, uh, it's there's like a one to one correlation of how how luxurious the rehab is and what list A list or B list you're on as an actor, because promises like I said uh, Charlie Sheen, Ben Affleck, Robert Downey, and then you work your way down to uh, Cottonwood in Tucson at a mere thousand dollars per day has had the likes of Rowan Atkinson and Spice Girl Jerry Halliwell. Thousand dollars per day is still that ain't cheap. Th- no, oh, no per day. Yeah. Oh, okay. I take that back then. Rowan Atkinson's making some cheese, apparently. I didn't know that Mr. Bean went to uh, rehab. I didn't either. And we shouldn't make fun of Jerry Halliwell because the Spice Girls are the best-selling female band of all time. Is that right? That was one of our trivia questions. So, Chuck, people are um, kind of like, yes, yes, celebrities can afford this. What if I'm an average Joe who's trying to kick the dope? Well, insurance can cover a lot of it. It used to cover even more. It used to be about 30% was paid by insurance, right? Um, and then by 2003, um, it, the the burden of cost had shifted away from not just the insurers, yeah. which were paying about 8%, and not even the patients, who were paying just 10%, but to the state, generally, society, right? Uh, taxpayers. Medicaid started picking up a lot of the tab, up to 60% of the tab. Yeah. And um, so let's say... between the insurance company, Medicaid, and the patient. And then the rest was being picked up um, by um, other state agencies. Yeah. Uh, And so, yeah, the burden of cost shifted to society, which made a lot of people start to wonder, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are we doing here, right? And so the cost-benefit analysis was born as far as rehab goes, right? So there's something to that, though. When you look at the fact that in 2003, uh, $20 billion and change was spent in all overall. Medicaid picked up 60% of that, so about 12 or so. And you think that's a lot of money, $12 billion. Mm-hmm. But they did a study that they looked at the de- the cost of alcohol and, and illicit drug use. Including tobacco. Including that's tobacco. A big one. Uh, and that includes uh, health care, crime, uh, property theft, stuff like that. Prison. Prison, $500 billion in 2002 alone. Wow. That's so, okay, so $12 billion paid by the state to offset $500 billion in cost to society. That's a pretty good deal. Well, that's what I think. You get some of these people healthy, they might not be robbing you. They might not be crashing their car into your loved ones. They might not be uh, stealing things and going to prison and 
you're footing the bill for all that. Mm-hmm. There was a, uh, a study by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholics that also found that um, for every dollar spent on rehab, $3 were saved in uh, larger cost to society, which is not bad. It's a pretty good return on investment is what they call that. Well, yeah, and you know, when you break down, th- those numbers sound expensive, and obviously the luxury places are expensive no matter who you are, but... I think they also skew the average quite a bit as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you look at a, a per-visit treatment uh, average cost, it's really not that bad. Outpa- outpatient uh, non-methadone treatments are about 26 bucks per visit. That's the one where you go to work and then go to rehab after work. Right. Uh, non-hospital residential treatments. That's like promises and, and crossroads. $76 per day. On average. I mean, that's, that's including every place. That's including like yeah. the place in the back of Joe's Crab Shack where they lock you up for 28 right. days to, you know, the the place in Byron Bay, Australia. So, But when you break it down like that, it's not that much money. No. And even more so, um, methadone. Uh, which you'll remember the average is about 7,400 bucks in 2002. Yeah. It's also the longest, right. um, overall, the right. longest treatment overall. And that broke down to $17.78 per visit to get somebody off of the dope, which is pretty, I, I think that's worth investing in. And that includes the methadone too, right? The actual. Yeah. That's medication. the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. Um, and then Chuck, there's also the human, uh, expense that you're, you're, you're saving that cost. When oh, yeah. you invest in treating addicts, right? right. Um, there was a, a study by Biotai, I think, that said that there are 12 million alcoholics in the United States, roughly, right? And if you consider that each alcoholic has a spouse, possibly children, and family in some way, uh, say five people that are in that alcoholic's life, that means that 60 million Americans are affected by alcoholism. Wow. And affected not in good ways. Well, I'm possibly creating new alcoholics for future generations to pay for, too. Yeah. You got to think about that. So, Chuck, I would say that that is the end of the addiction rehabilitation trifecta. Actually, you know what we should mention, though? Did you read A Million Little Pieces? The book? By James Fry? Mm Mm-hmm. No. That was the famous... I was specifically uh, told by Oprah not to read it. (laughs) Well, that's the deal, is that was the infamous bestseller about um, a memoir, quote-unquote memoir, about um, one young man's uh, stay in rehab, Mm -hmm. and it is awesome. Yeah. It was found out afterward, famously, to not be 100% true, Mm -hmm. after Oprah had said it was the best memoir she'd ever read. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, so he took a lot of heat over that. I read the book, and it's amazing, and you should read it. I wrote the guy a letter saying, dude, I don't care whether it's true or not. Just call it a novel and call it great. Yeah. And he was like, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. He wrote you back? Yeah. A letter? Uh, no, well, an email. So I recommend people read it. Just don't get all mad and say, this isn't true. Just consider it a novel mm-hmm. and a very good novel at that. Yeah. That's what I say. Okay. It's really, really good. And for every dollar... Um spent on James Fry's book A Million Little Pieces Chuck gets 50 cents of that (laughs) I wish so if you want to learn more about addiction rehab prohibition anything like that type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com it'll bring up some delightful articles and uh, it's time now at long last listener mail Josh, I'm going to call this uh, email from a new 12-year-old fan. I saw this one. 
It's from Emma. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that was Emma's mother's email address. I'm not sure. Yeah. But it said Emma. No, kids these days, they have their own email. Oh, do they? Uh, hi, Josh and Chuckers and Jerry. I don't know when I can do this, but I'm going to donate to Kiva. I'm 12 years old, and I'm going to get a job walking dogs and babysitting, etc. As soon as I do uh, get $25, I will donate it. But to get the job, I have to print flyers to pass out. To print flyers, we need to buy ink. To buy ink, we need extra money. That isn't going to stuff we need right now. No, but you do have to break a few eggs to make an omelet, Emma. That's right. And if you want to work at the omelet station, especially. If you want to be the squire of the omelet <laughs> That's station. That's right. Got to break a few eggs. Uh, but please read this part on the podcast, guys. Whenever it happens, I am going to save up the money because I'm getting this babysitting job babysitting snotty-nosed kids so I can give this money to Kiva and tell everyone they have no excuse if you have a real job. That was from Emma. And thank you very much, Emma. I think uh, my hat is off to you. If Chuck were wearing a cap, he would tip it. Uh, if you're one of Emma's neighbors, please forgive her for her description of your kids and hire her anyway because it's going to go toward a good cause. That's right. Right. Um, and if Emma can do this, you can do this too. If you want to donate to the, uh, donate, heck, lend, you get the money back. If you want, yeah. Uh, in $25 increments, you can go on to www.kiva.org slash team slash stuff you should know. Join our team, leave some messages on the message board, make some donations, have a good time, right? Agreed. And if you want to email us to let us know what you're doing to uh, save the world, whether it be dog walking or babysitting snot-nosed kids or what have you, uh, we want to hear about it in an email. Send it to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. The howstuffworks.com iPhone app is coming soon. Get access to our content in a new way. Articles, videos, and more, all on the go. Check out the latest podcasts and blog posts, and see what we're saying on Facebook and Twitter. Coming soon to iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?